would invite you to take your Bibles, or you can turn in the bulletin, and you'll see that our passage today is Psalm one. Or excuse me, Psalm nineteen. Psalm nineteen. We're going to be looking at the entire psalm. It's only fourteen verses long. Psalm nineteen. We think of C.S. Lewis as being a wonderful uh, poet and writer of uh, our time period. And and, uh, he kind of knows what he's talking about when he speaks about literature. And and listen to what C.S. Lewis said about Psalm 19. He said, I take Psalm 19 to be the greatest poem in the Bible and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. As if God's word wasn't enough, which it certainly is, to get your attention. Perhaps C.S. Lewis has piqued your interest. Let's read Psalm 19 together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come to your word, we would say the same prayer that David said. Let the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock. In our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Words have power. Words have power to give great encouragement. Words also have power to tear down. Words have power to hurt. Words have power to bring healing. Words are powerful. We had a wedding here yesterday. Uh, Covenant 
son of our church, John Acey, was married to Bella Higgins, just right here in front. And during the course of that wedding, they took vows. Those vows were being made before God and before the witnesses that were here in this room. And they, they said words to one another. And those words, if they take them to heart, are quite meaningful. Those words, the vows that they took, are meant to pledge themselves to one another for the rest of their lives. Words are powerful. Perhaps you know the story about the conversion of St. Augustine. Augustine was known as living a very reckless and sexually immoral life as a young man. Sometime in the year 386 AD, he was in the city of Milan and he was outdoors. And as he was outdoors during this period of time, he heard a young child singing a song. And the song went something like this. Take it up and read it. Take it up and read it. Augustine said in his account of his conversion story that the first time that he heard that, he he figured it was a, a, a child's uh, a game that was being played. But as he continued to hear the, the call, take up and read it, take up and read it, he says that a conviction, a strong conviction washed over him. Maybe this is a command from God and not just a child's game. He went and found a Bible and he opened it. And the first passage that he saw was Romans 13 verses 13 and 14. Where it says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in sexual excess and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine said that as he read those words, he felt as if his heart was being flooded with light. And he turned from his life of sin and made a profession in the Lord Jesus Christ and was baptized on Easter of 387 A.D. The word of God is powerful. I've asked you this before, but how do you think that your life would change if you could spend an afternoon with Jesus? And I don't mean going away to some cabin up north where you can meditate and reflect on what God's Word says and commune with your Savior. But I mean, if Jesus was actually here, walking on this earth once again, and you had the opportunity to spend the afternoon with Him, seeing Him, talking with Him, touching Him, listening to Him, can you imagine what that experience would be for your faith? How it would change you? The questions that you might ask. I think we can all appreciate that that would be something fairly powerful, a powerful experience. Peter tells us about a very interesting, similar experience that he had. It's referred to in the Gospels as the Transfiguration, where Peter and Jesus went up on a mountain and Jesus was transformed into his state of glory. And Peter was able to behold it. And Moses and Elijah appeared and an incredible voice from heaven spoke saying, Jesus is the son of God. Can you imagine what that experience must have been like for Peter? Can you imagine the, the way it must have strengthened Peter's faith? What would we do if we got to have an experience like that? Can you imagine how it might eliminate your doubts? How it might give you greater assurance in your faith? How it might empower you 
to live and to fight and to lean against your sin. But I want you to listen to what Peter said as he recounts what happened on the Mount uh, 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 and the Transfiguration. Listen to what Peter says in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1. We were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. He's talking about when Jesus was transformed into his glorious state during the Transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now listen to what he says. And we have something more sure. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Whoa. Think about that. Peter on the mountain with Jesus, seeing Jesus, walking with Jesus. And he says, we have something even greater than that in this time now. Even as great as the experience of the transfiguration transfiguration was, there's something he says that's even more sure and more certain. It is the word of God. And I wonder, brothers and sisters in Christ, do we have as high a view of the word of God as Peter did? And Peter does. Today, I want us to look at this psalm. It's one of the greatest passages in the Bible that tells us both about the creation of God, but even more specifically about the word of God. And what I want us to do is to see three things from the passage today. First, why the word of God is absolutely necessary. Secondly, why we must listen and obey it. And thirdly, what happens when we do listen and obey it? So, first of all, why is God's word absolutely necessary? Now, we have the beginning of Psalm 19, and most uh, scholars believe that the first six verses, which actually is how David begins his psalm on the word of God, he doesn't talk about the word of God initially. What does he talk about? He talks about creation. And, And most scholars believe that these first six verses of Psalm 19 was some sort of an ancient hymn that was sung in praise of God for his wonderful Creation. But that helps us to understand how important creation is. Look at the beginning of the psalm, at the beginning of verse 1. The creation declares the glory of God. You can go outside, and you will go outside after the service is over, and you can see the glory of God in the creation. The creation declares it. it. It pronounces the glory of God. It goes on to say at the end of verse 1, the creation declares God as creator and displays his handiwork. You can see the handiwork of God by going out and enjoying the creation. Verse 2 tells us that creation declares and proclaims this with wordless words. It's not as if there are literal words that come forth from the trees and the rocks and the grass and the birds and the animals. But there are wordless words that come from God's creation that display and declare the glory and the majesty of God. And and notice that it says in verse 2 that it declares and proclaims. And those are participles, meaning it continues to do that. 
you could go out today and just as the creation was declaring, proclaiming the, the majesty of God when Psalm 19 was being written by David, it does so even today. It declares the glory and the power and the majesty of the Creator. And that declaration goes out to the very ends of the earth, we read in verses 3 and 4. Verses 5 and 6 say that the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his bedroom. Or a strong man or champion and runs its course with joy. As the sun goes through its normal routine and circuit in the sky, it points us to the glory and the power and the wisdom of God. The creation speaks about God. It declares His majesty. It it declares His power and His beauty. It shows us that there is a Creator. It reveals the knowledge of the Creator. It's so potent that Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that just the declaration of the glory and the majesty and the power of God that we get through the creation is enough to render all humankind without excuse for not believing in the one true God. That's what Paul says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Why? For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. The creation is important because it declares the Creator. It shows us His beauty His creativity, His power, His majesty. But even though creation is important and sufficient and adequate to reveal the existence and the beauty of the Creator, notice what David goes on to say in the psalm. There is a limitation to the creation. Creation can't revive our souls. It can't teach us The specific details about who God is. It can't keep us from sinning or tell us how we are to live holy lives. Creation can't tell us God's wonderful and foreordained plan of redemption. The gospel of grace through Jesus Christ. Creation isn't perfect. It isn't pure and clean and true. It's been impacted by the fall. It can lead us astray. It can be misunderstood. It can be misinterpreted. Creation is enough to reveal the creator God, but it's not enough to reveal the redeeming God. That's why God's word is necessary. Why it's absolutely necessary. Because the word of God not only tells us about the nature and the character of the creator God, it also tells us about the faithfulness and the grace of the redeeming God. We remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10. It's a passage that's often used as we think about missions and the gospel going out. But but listen to what Paul says in Romans 10, beginning in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach, preach unless they are sent? As it is written, Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
But they have not all, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of God is absolutely necessary so that we will know about the redeeming God, about our father in heaven. I heard a pastor friend of mine tell the story. Uh, he's in Florida and uh, it's the story about someone that was a young man that was in his congregation. This young man lived in the panhandle of Florida and this young man was married. He had a young wife and very young children. And he was in the military and he was sent over to the Middle East and he was put into battle. And as happens with a number of young soldiers, this young man was killed in action. It was really tragic and very sad for the church family and for his family, as you would imagine. These small children that he had left to go and defend his country for were never going to know their father. They would never be able to grow up and know their father. People would tell them of their father, but they wouldn't know their father from him, his own words. Or would they? Before this young man left to go to battle, he recorded a hundred devotionals for his children. He would take a passage of the scripture and he would read it as it was being recorded. And then he would give a short explanation of it. So that his children, each night before they would go to bed, could hear from the word of God from their father. He also wrote them... Uh, cards for their birthdays, notes for their birthday that they, in, in, uh, as they grew older and as their birthdays come, they would get a card and they would get this message from their father who had gone into battle and had lost his life. These, these children, through these means, through, through the father recording his voice, recording his words and writing his words to his children, enabled his children to grow up knowing him because he left them his words. They would, have had, they would have had pictures of him. <laughs> they would have been able to see what he was like and see his, his likeness. But without these words, they wouldn't have really known who he was. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a Father in heaven who has left us His Word. His perfect Word. So that we can know Him. So that we can know His character. So that we can know the wonderful plan of redemption. And so it's absolutely necessary for us. Creation gives us a picture of God. His attributes, His divine nature. But it's limited. And so God has graciously given us His Word. As we start to understand the absolute necessity of God's word, it helps us to start to understand that we need to listen to it and obey it. We ought to listen to it and obey it simply because it's the word of God. But just to reinforce that, David goes on in verses 7 through 9 to tell us exactly what it is. He says in 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Did you notice all of the different things that, that David calls the word of God? 
It is the law. It is testimony. It is precepts. It is commandments. It is fear. It is rules. Now, we could spend a lot of time, and theologians have done that, trying to pull apart all of those different words that David's using there and trying to find nuances with each of the words and what that means. There'd be some value in that. But let me just say this, that essentially David is just using these words to convey the same thing to us over and over again. The word of God is the knowledge of God. It reveals to us who God is. And, of course... You don't have to wonder about that because if you look back in verses 7 and 8, six times in those two verses, we're told that these things are of the Lord. You see it? The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. David's making a point in that short span of time. To use that phrase of the Lord over and over and over again like he's doing. He is underlining it and highlighting it for us. That's what it is. It is the law of the Lord. It is the testimony of the Lord. It is the precepts of the Lord. That's the reason why we must listen to it and obey it. It has authority. It has power because it comes to us from the Lord. And did you also notice how it's described? Again, back in verses 7 and 8. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. It's true. That's what we would expect since it is God's word. And it's a further reason why we must listen to it and obey it. We remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We must listen. We must obey the word of God because of what it is. It is the word of the Lord. But he also gives us another reason why we must listen and obey it. It is because not only of what it is, but what it tells us. Did you notice toward the end of the psalm in verses 12 and 13, as David is reflecting on the word of God, as he's reflecting on the perfection of the word of the Lord, where does his attention go in verses 12 and 13? It goes to the ways that he falls short of what the word says. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, he says. As David reflects on the word of God, its truth and perfection shines its light into David's life. And he sees with great clarity his errors and faults and even presumptuous sins. The word reveals that David is not blameless and not innocent. When we, which we often do, we do so often, we, we, we tend to evaluate how we're doing in the Christian life by looking at other people and evaluating how we're doing based on what they, their life looks like. That's what our, our, our natural inclination is to do. But what David is showing us is that he has the light not of other people's lives, but the light of the scriptures of God's word that shines into his life. And when it does, he finds himself short of the standard. 
Creation can reveal to us everything that is, uh, it can reveal that everything is not perfect and right. But God's word gives us the details of that imperfection. In the word, we learn about what happened in the Garden of Eden. The fall of Adam and Eve and the, the sin against the creator. In the word, we, we learn that everyone since Adam and Eve has been born in sin. That we are corrupted in our nature. The word tells us that in order for things to be made right again, God himself has to come and solve the problem as the redeemer. Creation tells us, or excuse me, the Word of God tells us that indeed we need a Redeemer. But notice, the Word of God also tells us not just that we need a Redeemer, but that there is a provision of a Redeemer. Now, it's a little bit hard to see that here in this passage, but you can see it even in your English translations. You probably know this in the Hebrew. There are a number of different words for God, words that you're even probably familiar with. Uh, There's Yahweh, there's There's Elohim, there's Adonai, there's Jehovah Jireh and many others. And each of the words in Hebrew that are used have have slightly different meanings or they 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 focus on different attributes of who God is. Well, you can see even in your English translation at the beginning of the psalm in verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's the Hebrew word Elohim or it's shortened firm L. But did you notice starting in verse seven? Through the rest of the psalm, when God's name is used, what is the word that's used? It's not just God, not just Elohim. It's the Lord. And notice it's all in capital letters. That's the way our English translations let us know that this is the word Yahweh. That is the special name of God that is given to God's people. It's the reminder that God is a covenant keeping God. That he is faithful to his promises. That he indeed will fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15 that a redeemer will come. And it's almost as if David is saying that as he looks out in creation and he sees the majesty of the creator, he knows that it is God's glory that he is seeing. But as he turns to the word of God, he is told over and over and over again that it's not just a distant creator God. That he serves. It is Yahweh. It is the redeeming God. The one who knows that he needs a redeemer. Reads that a redeemer is being supplied. He knows that he needs a redeemer in verses 12 and 13. And he knows that he gets that redeemer. I mean you can see that he knows that. Because look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. How? O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He knows that God indeed must be his redeemer. That word acceptable that's used there is the same word that's often used in the Old Testament for sacrifices that were brought into the temple to Uh, symbolize the the forgiveness of the sins of God's people. And it's as if David is saying, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable before you, Lord God Almighty, Elohim and Yahweh. Why? 
Because you are my rock and you are my redeemer. You make me acceptable through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it is absolutely necessary for us to listen to the word of God and to obey the word of God. It is the very word of God. It is his law, his commands, his rules, his story. It is perfect and it's right. It's true and sure. And thankfully, it shows us not only that we need a redeemer, but it also graciously tells us of the redeemer that is provided for us. And if that is not enough for God's people to have a seriousness about the word of God and knowing what it says, look at what David tells us as he finishes this psalm of what happens when we listen to and obey the word of God. Again, back in verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. It revives our soul. It brings our soul back. It renews life within us. It turns our hearts back to the Lord in love and righteousness. It makes those of us that often feel simple wise. And those moments when we need wisdom, when we lack discernment, when we are easily misled, when we need clarity. The word of God makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It causes the heart to have joy and delight and satisfaction and contentment. It enlightens our eyes. It shines the light on what is true and it helps us to see it clearly. He goes on in verse 10 to talk about other things that happen when we listen and obey to the word, obey the word of God. It fills us with a sweetness that quenches our desires. Verse 11, it warns us, it lets us know of danger and harmful things, things that would lead us away from the Lord. The end of verse 11, it tells us of the reward that is ours for listening and obeying the word of God. Do you see? Do you see, people of God, do you see what happens when we listen to and obey the word of God? Doesn't that, want you, doesn't that make you want to know it, to be filled with it, to savor it like honey, like honey that is dripping from the honeycomb? So let's finish by thinking about what all this means for us and what difference it should make for us. Just two questions as we finish today. First, are you reading the Word of God? Are you reading the Word of God? Now, perhaps, perhaps there are some uh, tuning in today or in our, within the hearing of uh, this portion of God's Word that would consider yourself an unbeliever or someone who's searching or somebody who's a skeptic. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what the story of Christianity is all about, if you want to learn about the greatest love story that has ever been told, not just what you've been told that God is like, not just what you've been told that Christianity is like, not just what you've been told that the gospel of grace is, but the truth of those things, here is where you get it from the word of God. It's worth your time to read it. On your own and with others as well. And for those of us who claim the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Word of God gives us everything that we need 
for our faith and for our practice of our faith. It gives everything that David has said in Psalm 19. And so because of that, we should want to read it and to learn it. Paul told us it's useful, it's profitable for what? For correction, for training us in righteousness so that we can be complete, so that we can be equipped for every good work that God has for us to live for him. And yet, a survey that was done a few years ago says among church going people, only about 54 percent of those who would claim to be church going people say that they read the scriptures one time or less a week. wonder how many of us fit into that statistic. Compare that to the amount of time that we spend on social media. Uh, compare that to the amount of time that we read other good books. Compare that to the time that we spend reading medical journals and trade journals and magazines, blogs and news and political websites and watching television. Now, all of those things have their place. But when those things take the place of the scriptures and our desire for the scriptures, things are out of whack. The Word of God is given to us as a tool. It's given to us as a means of grace to help us to grow and to mature and to flourish in our love for Jesus. Meditating on the Word of God is something that God gives us and something that God works through to give us power even over our besetting sins. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we will not grow and mature in the Christian faith without the Word of God. But just reading it is not enough. The second question is this, are you submitting to it? The Word of God is not just something that we ought to listen to and then forget about. It's something that we must submit ourselves under. If it is the Word of God, and it is, if it is authoritative, and it is, then it is over us. We are to be submitted to it. That means that our attitudes and our mindset and our behaviors all need to change to be in conformity to what the Word of God says. When our views and our understandings of the world and our convictions and our worldview don't line up with description with the scriptures, then it's us that needs to change. The Word of God is authoritative. Some of you may know the name Forrest Finn. Forrest Finn. Forrest is an 89-year-old man. He's a retired Air Force pilot who received distinguished awards for missions that he flew in Vietnam. After he retired from the military, he moved back to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he opened up an art gallery something that he was particularly interested in. He became very successful as uh, with this art gallery, uh, gathering precious uh, art and gems and jewels from all over the world to be displayed in his gallery. And about 10 or 15 years ago, about, it was about 10 years ago, he came up with an idea. His idea was this, that he would hide some treasure somewhere in the United States and then he would give out clues and see who could find his treasure. 
Well, that's what he did. He took one of his particular treasures from his gallery. It was a little bronze box that was created in the 12th century, about 22 pounds of weight, 10 inches by 10 inches by 5 inches, and then he filled it with gold and with gems and with rare coins and jewelry. And then he took the chest with all of the treasure and he went and buried it somewhere in the United States. And then he wrote a book and a poem that gave clues about where the treasure was. People looked for 10 years. All that they knew was that it was someplace between Santa Fe and the Canadian border, somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. It's estimated that as many as 350,000 people from around the world went on an expedition to find the treasure. In fact, there are some that even lost their lives because of searching for the treasure in dangerous places. Nobody could find it until two weeks ago. On June the 6th, somebody found the treasure someplace in the Rocky Mountains, exactly where he had left it. He knew that it had been found because somebody took a picture of it and sent it to him. He doesn't know who it is. He doesn't know where they live, but it's been found. They're, the search is over. Now, I want you to think about that. Imagine the incredible devotion and the commitment and the drive to search for this treasure, which some say that was worth maybe up to $2 million. People from all over the world came looking for this treasure. People were willing to risk their lives and actually died trying to find the treasure. I wonder how many of us have such a desire for something, a treasure that never passes away. A treasure that's worth so much more than two million dollars. We have the word of God worth more than the treasures in such a treasure chest. And it's not hidden. You don't have to go find it. It is given to us as God's people. It's given to us to treasure above everything else. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we ought not to take for granted. We have the freedom to read it. We have the freedom to study it, to gather under it, to proclaim its truth. So if anybody should read this word and treasure it, it should be us. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for having such a lackadaisical attitude about the Word of God. We take it for granted. We don't take it seriously. We don't read it. We don't treasure it. Please forgive us. And I pray, Father, that for all of us, that you would fill us with a greater desire. That this Word would be ebbing and flowing with our, within our very veins. That we would not only just read it, but that we would meditate upon it and that we would submit to it. And that as we do so, Father, that you would encourage us and that you would use it 
to help us to grow and mature in our faith that we might know you in even greater ways. Do this for your glory, but also for our good. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.